Well, I have the, the privilege of teaching you about prayer today. Um, prayer has been something that's mattered uh, deeply to me for many, many years, uh, but I struggle with it like everyone else does. Uh, feel defeated by my prayer life, like I'm sure you often do. Uh, and yet, um, I would say that God's given me a burden for prayer uh, for many years. And uh, I've been trying to figure out how, how does this thing work? Um, and I want to pass on something that's been one of the main lessons. I would say the number one lesson in prayer that God has taught me over the years today. I think we would all agree that there are many factors that make um, outreach and missions work around the world, but surely one of the most important of all is prayer. Uh, Jesus, you know, didn't say an awful lot directly about the church in the Gospels. Uh, of course, all of his teaching is, uh, is used by the church and for the church, but he specifically didn't, only said a few things in the Gospels about the church directly. But one of the things he said was this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's to characterize the church. If there's anything we should be known for, it should be our corporate, collective prayer life together. As I've gotten older, I've, I've discovered a secret. Sometimes lessons that take uh, years to learn, you can learn in just a matter of minutes, sometimes hours, if the Holy Spirit is present. And so my hope this morning is that in the next 30 minutes, I will be able to impart a lesson about prayer to you that has taken me years and years to learn. Uh, what I'm going to share with you, as I've mentioned earlier, is, is would, would probably be the single greatest lesson about prayer that I've learned in the last 35 years. Uh, if you get a hold of this lesson, I, I guarantee it will transform your prayer life. So let us begin with prayer. Father, you said that um, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we're asking for the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. Um, help us to greet the word with faith. Help us to understand. Um, and and. I think of that place in Philippians 2, 13, that it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We ask that the Holy Spirit will now especially uh, empower our wills, our broken wills, our wills that are curved in on ourselves and curved away from you, that you'll curve them back to you today. Do something in our wills, uh, which is really the, the crux of prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could open your Bibles to Genesis 32. First book in the Bible, 32nd chapter, Genesis 32. And I'd like to read the first 12 verses. So if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Genesis 32, 1 to 12. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. 
So he called the name of the place Mahinium. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with, ja- with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I sent to my lord to tell him, in or- sorry, I, I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And then now Jacob prays in this crisis and listen carefully to how he prays. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Please take your seats. If you're a little familiar with the Bible, you will know that this is a famous chapter. Um, The the famous chapter where Jacob the deceiver meets his... his, um, brother Esau after many years. He is now uh, in a place where his past is catching up with him. If you know the story of Jacob, he was the deceiver. His name means deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright many years previous, deceived both his brother and his father. And now many years later, Esau is coming with 400 men. And he is in a crisis. He was, he is greatly afraid and distressed, verse 7 tells us. But in this crisis, Jacob does something exceedingly powerful that is instructive for us. Look with me again at verse 9 and then at verse 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, you see that? O Lord, who said to me, then in verse 12, as he's praying, he says, but you said. Do you see what Jacob is doing here? What we find is that Jacob is using God's promises as the basis for his prayers. God had made a promise to Jacob actually many years earlier. He had had told him that he would be with him. And it's interesting that the way Jacob... uh, explains that, and we're going to get to that at the end of the message, but notice how he says that you may, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So God didn't actually say those exact words. He said, I'll be with you, but Jacob understood it, that you were going to do, he was, God was going to do good to him. But he takes 
this promise that was made to him many years previous to this crisis point, and he reminds God of his promise. You know what I have found that the single greatest mistake that most people make when they pray? It's going to surprise you. It's simply this, that people identify a need, and then they pray about the need. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, they, they failed to do what Jacob did. Jacob had a need, but he attached a promise to the need and then prayed about it. You see, most people bypass God's word when they pray. They have the need and they pray about the need. But if they attached God's word to the prayer, it'd be like, it's like putting snow tires on, on, on your car. All of a sudden you have got traction. So here's a lesson that I want to pass on to you today. It's, it's a simple Simple lesson. If you, if you remember this, it will change the way you pray. I guarantee this. It's the, most important it's the most important lesson that I've ever really learned about prayer. And it's simply this. Quote God when you pray. Quote God when you pray. Use scripture when you pray. Attach promises to your requests. And you will find there's a whole different level of power and faith and answers. Now, there are two simple truths that we need to get a hold of if we're going to benefit from Jacob's example. And the first of these is simply this. We need to believe the promises are actually ours to use. We need to believe that the promises are ours to use. This, this Bible has about 8,000 promises in it. And the way most of us use promises is we use them on, on little picture books with nice pictures of sunsets on coffee tables. So we use the, the, the promises primarily as just things that make us, remind us of things about God and say, isn't that nice? But the, the promises, my friends, are not primarily intended to be kind of used that way. They're intended to be used in prayer. Okay, I didn't say this in service number one, but this is an important point. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, how did you become a believer? You became a believer by believing a promise and praying that promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You believed that. You, you trusted in a promise about what would happen if you trusted in Christ. And because you, you prayed that promise, what happened? Something transformed in your life. You, you changed your whole life through, a, through praying a promise. We all know what praying promises are if you're a believer. But what about all the other promises? Yeah, God made a direct promise to Jacob. That's one thing, but he hasn't made a direct promise to us. I mean, what about all the promises that are made to Abraham and to Joshua and David? Do we have a right to claim those promises for ourselves? What about all the promises that are made to the nation of Israel? There's an awful lot of them. Do we have any right to those? Well, let's see. <laughs> I think he will be proved wrong. So let's find out. <laughs> if you could turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I love interaction in, in, in my sermons. It's... It, it keeps everyone alive and, and listening. Second Corinthians 6, 
let me just remind you about this, this book. This, this is one of, one of the, the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was in Corinth, okay? The Corinthian church was primarily non-Jewish people, okay? People that had no biblical background. In our day, it would be people that were non-religious and secular. They had no idea of what the Bible was, okay? And plus, there was some that were part of the church that were, that were Jews. They, they, had a, they had a strong biblical base, but they were the minority. The vast majority were, were what we call Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And what he's doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, at the very end, starting at verses 14, he's giving them teaching about the dangers of being unequally yoked, unequal partnerships with unbelievers in both marriage and in business and etc. And after giving the teaching in verses 14 to 16, he, he buttresses his argument with a whole bunch of promises to motivate them and give them incentive to obey. And let me read those to you, starting at verse 16. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 16. I like to read to the end of the chapter. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, okay, now he's going to quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What he does here is he takes a whole bunch of, of promises from the Old Testament and sews them all together. If you look in your footnotes, you'd find that they're from, some are from Leviticus, and some are from Exodus, and some are from Isaiah. But if you look at the original context, you would find that all of these promises were made to Israel, the nation of Israel, okay? Now, notice these astounding words in chapter 7, verse 1. After he said this, this is what he says. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's an astounding thought. This, by the way, James, this is why I went from being dispensational to reformed. That was the passage that I realized, oh my goodness, this clear divide between Israel and the church that I've always believed in, it's not there. There is differences. Yes, there are differences, okay? We don't have time to get into that today. But my goodness, the promises that were given to Israel are the inheritance of the church. They are, the, the church is the rightful heir of those promises. It says it right there, we have these promises. And he's saying that to non-Jewish people in the New Testament. And he's just quoted a whole bunch of promises that were made to Israel. The, the church, in a, in a very real sense, is the new Israel. Now let me show you another verse that's an astounding verse, one of my favorite promises actually, just a couple of chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It sums up what, what I'm trying to get across here. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 
So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's promises are yes in Christ. All of God's promises, my friends, ultimately point to Christ. They're ultimately fulfilled in Christ. They're, they're, they're something that's given to him. They're part of his inheritance, part of his riches. And if I get connected to Christ, I get in on those riches. I get in on that inheritance. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to remove something, a, a terrible debt that we had to God to remove our sin debt and clear us so that the weight would be open to God. But he also gave us something. It wasn't just a minus. The cross wasn't just a minus. It was a plus. We were, we were getting massive riches, massive warehouses of God's promises are now available to the believer in Christ. You know, when, um, when a woman marries a man and moves into his home, his, his car becomes her car. Her, his home becomes her home. His bank account becomes her bank account. At least that's the way it should be. I recognize in our modern day, it's often not that way anymore. But it should be that way because that's what marriage means. Marriage, by its very definition, is, means union. You're, you're, you're taking two things that are apart and joining them into one. Well, well the Bible teaches us that, that the bride of Christ, when it marries Christ, when it believes in Christ, you get in on everything that, that is in Christ. We need to believe, my friends, that the promises are our possession. They belong to us. And we need to have the faith to take them and use them in our prayers. Promises, the promises of God are intended to be used. Used. There's something that God's giving us to use. You know, uh, I have a brother-in-law that is uh, an amazing uh, at building homes and renovations and everything. He can do anything. And he's got in his, in his cottage that he built, he's got all kinds of old tools on the, on the wall uh, that are really interesting to look at. But as you know, tools are not intended for viewing on walls. Tools are intended to be used. You see, if you've got tools in your shed, you're, those, those tools in your toolbox are, are intended to be used, not admired. Too many believers admire the promises of God but they don't use them. We need to be convinced that God has indeed given us his great and precious promises in Christ. They are ours and they are intended to be used. So first of all, we found that we need to believe the promises are ours. But secondly, and this is really where the rubber meets the road, we need to use the promises in our prayers. The great pastor Matthew Henry said this about prayer. The best we can say to God in prayer is what he has said to us. Many great leaders of faith have spoken about prayer in the same way. Edward Lay, who wrote one of the best books on the use of the promises in prayer, a treatise on divine promises, said this, He that prays without a promise denies his own request. And of course, the great Puritan pastor, the prince of the Puritans, John Owen, the great theologian out of England, um, said this about prayer and the promises. 
We are to pray in faith, and faith concerns God's promises. If therefore we understand not what God has promised, we cannot pray at all. And then he went on to say, what God has promised, all that he has promised, and nothing else are we to pray for. My friends, this simple idea, and it is a very simple idea, has changed the way I pray forever. I tell you, it's very hard to, be, to persevere in prayer if you don't see answers. One of the reasons I'm convinced that many Christians don't pray, and now there's big reasons why we don't pray, the, the, the resistance of our sinful nature, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I, I, I believe the two big things that the devil is always resisting in church life is evangelism and prayer, because those are the two things that do the most, most damage to his kingdom, okay? Uh, along with the preaching of the word. But somehow... I don't know why this is. I've never been able to figure it out. It's easier to do the preaching of the word. What I'm doing right now, this is way easier than me getting on my knees and spending time wrestling with God. That part's harder. Okay? And, and there is just a resistance to prayer. And, and, and I have found that if you don't get answers to prayer, if you don't see regular answers, you, you, can't, just, you can't just continue to pray because it's the right thing to do. You need to see it actually works. And God's practical. God wants you to see that prayer works. Well, I'm telling you, prayer starts to really work when you start to attach promises to your requests. It really makes a huge difference. So often people have told me through the years, I just don't know what to pray or how to pray. And of course, that's an honest confession. We, we've all experienced those feelings. This is the typical answer I give to people. I say, pray God's word back to him. Use your Bible and pray it back. We've got a whole, we've got a whole book in the Bible that's for that called the book of Psalms. You know, one of my heroes is, is St. Augustine. Um, he had the whole book of Psalms memorized, which wasn't so ex- uh, it wasn't so impressive. It's impressive to us to hear that. Many, many people in the, in the early church had the entire book of Psalms memorized by heart. And they would pray it. Pray it over and over again. Many, many, many monks prayed through the entire Psalter every week. From beginning to end, every week. They did that. Uh, there, are, uh, there is so much life that will enter into your prayer life when you start praying Scripture. Praying over your Bible. When you read your Bible in the morning or whenever you do it, pray. Read and pray at the same time. Mix them together. So how do we begin? How do we actually start to make this practical? Well, let me first of all recommend a free resource to you that you can download on your phone. Um, it's both available both for Android and iPhone. Uh, it's called Prayer Mate. And it, it uses this database of um, a book that I put together many years ago that has 1,500 promises and 1,000 uh, scripture prayers that you can just very easily attach to your prayer requests. It makes it very easy for you. I actually never use the app. I'm going to confess that to you. I, I, I just use the book um, just because I'm old and, you know, digitally challenged. But, but I, I actually, the main reason I don't is I just find it too distracting. 
you know, you want to see my phone? Let me show you my phone. That's my phone. That phone is only a phone and text. No applications, no internet. It's wonderful. And I saved two hours a day by not having, I got rid of my, my iPhone. Um, but for those of you who are not easily distracted like I am, the app is great. But let me also give you another simple way that you can do this regarding the theme of this weekend, and that is praying for missions. You know, probably the most common um, promise in the Bible, if it is not the most common promise, it's one of the most common promises in the Bible, is the promise that God says he will be with us. Okay? It's said over and over and over again in Scripture. And most of us only partially understand what that promise means. Most of us get that it's a promise of God's presence, and therefore we're not alone, and we, we can be comforted by the fact we're not alone, okay? And that's part of that promise, for sure. But there is something way more to that promise than that. And here's the other part that most of us are not aware of. And I could give you literally about 30 to 40 verses to prove what I'm going to prove to you now, but we just don't have time. So I'm going to show you just three representative when, when, when the Bible promises that God will be with us, it means that we will be successful in what we do. That's what that verse means. It means that God's favor will be upon us for success. Okay, and let me show you that. Genesis 39, 23, speaking of Joseph, it says, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because God, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. With Samuel. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. His people paid attention to Samuel because the Lord was with him. Uh, of, of David, it says, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. See? It definitely has that meaning. That's, this is one of the big things I found out about that wonderful promise. It's a powerful promise that God says, my favor is going to be on you, and I'm going to give you success as you follow me and do my will. Okay? Now, listen now to a, a verse that many of you know so well you've got it memorized. But listen to it now with new ears. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see what that's saying there? Uh, that's not just saying that when you go out and share the gospel with people, you're not alone. He is saying that promise is that when you share the gospel, I will bless that sharing of the gospel and people will be converted. I will work and give success to my word. You will not be going out and wasting your time. Jesus gives us a wonderful promise that he connects to this command. And so, my friends, we need to get a hold of God through using his promises in prayer. When, when you share your faith with 
a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. And by the way, if you struggle with that, everybody struggles with it. There's no difference between us and the early church. We have all the same issues. In fact, they had more issues. You talk about COVID fear, they had the fear of whether they're going to lose their life. Okay? They, they dealt with fear too. It was a dangerous thing in that day. Uh, they had all the issues that we have. They prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to sharing Christ was, was being filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't uh, having an evangelism course. An evangelism course will not empower you for witness. It will tell you what to say, but it won't give you the courage to do it. The, it's the Holy Spirit that gives you the courage. That's what we find through the whole book of Acts. It's, it's as the Holy Spirit fills people, he empowers them to share Christ. But then, as we share Christ, we can wrestle with God and say, Lord, make what I say fruitful according to your promise, because you promised this. When we pray for missionaries in closed countries, when we pray for the outreach of this church in Georgetown and surrounding vicinity, we are to remind God of his promises in prayer, collectively. Oh, one of the burdens of my heart is that churches will once again back, get back into praying together corporately. Uh, if you, it's, it's a very interesting study in the book of Acts um, how there were corporate prayer meetings were, uh, before every significant breakthrough in evangelism. Prayer was always a part of the breakthrough moments in the, in the book of Acts. You, you study it sometime, and it was corporate prayer. Corporate prayer was very significant, and it still is significant. Yes, we do praying in small groups and all that, but the church needs to get together. Get together. The whole church needs to get together and pray. We, we need to be a house of prayer again, and God will use it to bless the nations. We need to pray as Jacob prayed. But we need to say, Oh God who said to me, Make disciples in the name of the, and baptize them, and I will be with you always. The God who said that, do what you said. Be with me now. Be with our church. Be with that missionary there and, and attend what he's doing with favor and success. Oh Lord, as, as we share the gospel, grant repentance and faith and new life as you have said you will. Attach promises to your prayers. Don't just have needs and pray about them. Insert something in the middle. The way I say it to people is uh, need plus prayer equals possible answer. Need plus promise plus prayer equals probable answer. You see, it's, uh, did I say that right? Uh, yes, God answers. I, there's times I forget to attach promises to my prayers and God answers. But I'm telling you, when you attach a promise to the needs, oh my goodness, it's like, it's like there's just a whole new traction. A new faith. And God uh, delights to answer his promises. Pray his promises and wait until he answers because he will. Let's, let's pray together. Father, this is such a simple lesson. Uh, it took me so long to learn this. I, I ask that it would not be easily forgotten here. You've given us this wonderful book 
Many of us have several copies of it at home. We have it on our phone digitally. We have it on our computer. We have so much access to your living word. Oh, Father, I pray that now we combine those wonderful words of life and especially these wonderful promises uh, with our prayers. And, uh, and as I started, Lord, I pray that promise again for this congregation. You have said that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's your promise. I pray that you will, you will give the Holy Spirit powerfully to this congregation for all that they need in coming days. In Jesus' name, amen.